and welcome to ESPN's The Far Post podcast. I'm Anna Harrington. There's no Marissa Lodanik this week, and I'm joined, as always, by the wonderful Samantha Lewis and Angela Christian-Wilkes. Before we get started today, we want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land we're recording on, the Wurundjeri and Gadigal people, and pay our respects to their elders past and present. Of course, we're joining you today because we are wrapping up the Matildas. Uh, Most recent international friendly against Spain, it was a 7-0 loss. So clearly not what we were expecting, not what we were planning for. And uh, I think when plenty of people woke up on Sunday morning, they would have been pretty stunned. Um, Sam, you were were writing about this in the early hours of Sunday morning. Um, I was watching it bleary-eyed, just trying to process and watching the ball go into the back of the net past Mackenzie Arnold a lot of times. It was bad. <laughs> what went wrong? Oh, gosh. Uh, do we want to go chronologically or alphabetically? Um, yeah, look, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a great uh, second half from the Matildas. I'm going to say that because I think in the circumstances, Australia's first half against Spain was pretty good. And let's, I think, flesh out what those circumstances really are. So we've talked about the fact that the Matildas squad is based uh, or was was built basically without their entire starting 11. Um, The vast majority of players who were called into this particular camp uh, have 10 caps or fewer. A lot of them play New South Wales MPL. A lot of them are in their first or early stints overseas a lot of them are young um, and a lot of them probably did not expect to be called up into a moment like this in, at this stage of their careers. Meanwhile, they're coming up against Spain and Spain, you know, even though they've sort of not really been around women's international football for very long, they, I think, are very rapidly emerging as probably one of the favourites to take out not just the upcoming Women's Euros, but probably the Women's World Cup next year as well. And if we look back across their playing history over the last couple of years, I just want to read out a couple of stats to sort of put into context just how good this Spain team is and what this Matildas team were actually coming up against. They last lost a game in 2020. And that was a 1-0 against the USA in a friendly. Their last competitive loss was at the 2019 Women's World Cup, also against the USA, who went on to win it. And it was only a 2-1 loss. And I think anyone who watched that game remembers that Spain really, really pushed the USA as well. They were unlucky almost to lose that. Since that competitive loss in 2019, they have won 22 games, drawn four and lost two. They have scored... 123 goals and conceded five. So this is, Spain are no pushovers. Spain are an extremely good team filled with extremely good players, the vast majority of whom come from either Barcelona, who've just gone back-to-back Champions League finals, or Real Madrid. They're full-time professionals playing in some of the best competitions in the world. And they're coming up against a bunch of players who this sort of ragtag thrown together group of Matildas, many of whom are playing at the international level for the first time and they cop a 7-0 loss. I think in those circumstances, the first half to be able to get to half time with Spain only up 1-0 is pretty impressive. The second half was very different and we'll go into that in a little bit more detail, but I think it's really important from the off to actually contextualise what this game what was happening with, with this game and why we perhaps saw what we saw. But Angela, I'm curious about your interpretation of it as well. Yeah. Um, as, as a Matildas fan, it was depressing. As someone who's about to go to the Euros, um, delightful, I guess, to see Spain play. But, um, yeah, they. I, I was very excited when, you know, these friendlies were announced because Spain are such an exciting team to watch. And we definitely got to see, you know, what they have on offer and what their, their strengths are. Um, Anna, you might be able to speak to this as well, but their goal scoring abilities, we really, really saw that in the second half. Um, and yeah, when it was like um, that that goal before halftime, I, I think 
to to have reached a point where we went almost the whole 45 without conceding and the amount of pressure that the Tillies were under, I think that was uh, that was a good a good result. It was just that second half, it kind of fell apart and there didn't seem to be the problem-solving capacity on the field, I guess, to figure out what to do and how to how to move forward. Um, and yeah, I think I can't even remember. We did have a couple of opportunities in that first half, including that gory shot that hit the crossbar. And that was, even though they weren't particularly formidable, it was still interesting to see that in contrast to the second half where there was really nothing at all. Um, but at the same time in saying that, like, you know, this group of players weren't able to, you know, get out of that sort of chaotic mindset that they fell into, a chaotic football that they kind of fell into. It's a really young group um, and that context is really important. And I think it was just, yeah, and I suppose as well, you guys can probably talk to this a bit more eloquently than me, but the formation change. And Emily Van Egmond was very quiet in that first half, but then as soon as she went off, you realised that having that body in the centre of the park really did provide that, that little extra coverage. Um, in saying all this, like obviously the the six goals in the second half, not ideal, but um, I'm in, impressed. I was impressed by like, I think Charlie Grant was a very... Um, deserving player of the match. I think she really stepped up and you guys spoke extensively about what it means in terms of Ellie. Well, we've talked about it on the podcast in terms of Ellie Carpenter on her ACL recovery journey and and Charlie Grant and where she fits in with all of that. Um, I guess overall, in terms of the larger context, I guess I'm a little bit nervous because looking at these friendlies on paper, you would potentially expect us to be seeing a team that if we played you know, Spain at the World Cup next year, a, t- a similar, you know, on paper team, but the circumstances just didn't allow for that. So it is that kind of thing of like, well, what can we glean from this? Because what do you gain from being, you know, Taylor Ray going on for the last few minutes of that game for her debut and getting pumped? And what can, hello, Melon, do you have takes? Do you have takes? I love I, that Melon's tail just came and like whacked you softly in the face and just. <laughs> so, hello, Taylor Ray, my favourite player. Well, exactly, Andrew. I think that's the, the big question a lot of people are having is what do these young players actually gain out of getting absolutely smacked? I think this, for one thing, this 7-0 loss, I think it's the worst result the Matildas had in something like a quarter of a century. Like, from the back, you can see it's going to pile more pressure on Tony Gustafson, who is already under pressure. Like that is <clears throat> that is as simple as it gets, especially post Asian Cup. But I think there's just a few questions that have come out of this. Um, in terms of the second half, when you look at it, uh, yeah, there were some bangers. Like um, friend of the pub, Ben Williams, pointed out, you don't see many uh, national teams who are as capable in terms of taking long shots and putting them top bins the way Spain could. I think they had three goals. Their first two goals were bangers. But also some of the defending was was really awful. And that's not just a young players with an experience. There's a combination there of, I'm not sure if it was because of Tegan Micah's injury or if there was a planned substitution. Mackenzie Arnold didn't look assured as a goalkeeper. She never sort of looked confident. There was that one where it was uh, she sort of came out to contest at a near post and then the little flick back in for the header. Um, that wasn't great. There was a few where her positioning was off, but just some of the the defensive efforts compared to that first half where I thought they were quite resolute and trying to block things and trying to contest early. You saw players get left, you know, completely in the, in the dust. You saw players not really competing for headers. And I think, you know, even if you're looking at the pure Sam, I think you said it last week, Australian DNA sort of stuff. It's pretty, you know, they're the things that you expect to see. They're sort of non-negotiables. I think people would have been pretty disappointed with some of those efforts, but to you can sort of dismiss that to an extent because they were like lambs to the slaughter, right? Like you, a friend of the pod, um, Joey Lynch did a piece and the line that stood out to me was you go, what, what was the point? You, as Angela said, we were very excited to see these friendlies on paper. You go, yeah, great tune up for them um, ahead of their Euros, but a great chance to see where we're at a year out from the World Cup. And we'll talk about, obviously, we know that there were loading issues, why this squad was very different. But it just makes you think, well, what was the planning in all of this? Like, (laughs) I know that you lock in friendlies and then you have to change some plans, but 
surely there was a long-term view of this that at some point they knew they would have to rest Sam Kerr, Caitlin Ford, Alana Kennedy, Steph Catley, et cetera, et cetera. So it just seems very odd the way these windows have worked out that you have all the big guns come back to Australia for that series against New Zealand, when, which would have, let's be honest, been the perfect time, even if you didn't play all the big guns, even if you played some of them, to bring in some of these players, to, to give Charlie Grant more game time, to, to test out. Um, I was surprised that Winona Heatley wasn't tested out, to be honest, given she spent her whole A-League women's season playing as a left-sided defender in a back three, and she's a right footer, so can play the right side of a back three. As good as Charlie Grant was, I, I was wondering if there was an opportunity for either Grant or, or Nevin to be maybe used, you know, more in terms of bombing up. Um, we didn't see that. But, yeah, it's just I feel like what Angela says is correct. You don't know how much these players actually get out of being thrashed. You get a lot out of seeing how quality players operate. But I think they would have already known that they're not at the level of um, these, these Spain players. I think a lot of these players would have been better served playing against New Zealand and we would have been all better served by seeing some of our good players play against Spain. I, I'm not sure of the logistics in terms of working out who plays who and what window. And I think a more accurate thing we'll see is when you'd assume the big guns will all be back for the, those games against Canada, where you actually get to see two good teams go go head to head. But yeah, it was just, you want, you wonder really what, what, as Angela said, a player like a Taylor Ray gets out of minimal a little bit of game time in a game where you're already getting smashed, heads have dropped, confidence is down, um, you, you're barely seeing the ball. Um, I mean, even the first half, as resolutely as they defended, and you know, I don't know how many choices they had in terms of not getting opened up, but there was clearly bar one sort of gory shot that hit the crossbar. And Katrina Gory was excellent, by the way. Um, very little going forward. So if you're Spain, you can just say, well, why don't we just attack at will? Because they're not providing anything going the other way. And of course, the pressure was going to build and build and build. And once the damn wall broke, it was, you know, straight after halftime, you saw that sort of 10, 15 minutes of madness. And then it settled again. Um, and probably the really disappointing thing for me was that they sort of all broke down again in the last 10 minutes. It just collapsed. Um, and that was that was really disappointing um, to me. I just, yeah, I just sort of query what, what we really get out of it. I'm not sure what these young players get out of being sort of humiliated. And you see, you know, Bleacher Report post about it on Twitter, you know, like all listing all the goals. You see the sad photos of the Matildas players having conceded yet another goal or this, you know, Spain jubilation shots because they're just banging them past them over and over again. I, I just, yeah, I just query the whole exercise really like <laughs> if we'd lost to Spain and we had you know more first choice players you can go oh well we can actually gain something from this but I feel like if you're one of those young players you'd feel like you never really got the chance to show what you can do you know Courtney Vine's playing wing back um the defense is under siege the whole time you're Larissa Crummer playing your first game and it's never really getting near you like I I just I feel like it yeah I know you're on a hiding to nothing really aren't you yeah, look, I, I don't, I, I have to disagree. I don't think it was a pointless exercise. I think there were a couple of big um, lessons that we learned as fans. I think that Tony and the coaching staff and the players also learned a couple of big things. And I sort of addressed them briefly in my ABC piece. But you mentioned Harrow Katrina Gori. I think her performance against Spain was the strongest possible argument for why she needs to be part of the Matildas going forward. Um, and in 2023, she was really the only player who was able to match the speed of um, of technique, the speed of thought, the speed of, of passing, um, and, and was really the Matildas' only creative outlet against, you know, a midfield that contains the current Ballon d'Or winner, Alexia Pateas. Like it was, it wasn't nothing. It was a really, really impressive outing from Mini. I think as Angela mentioned, Charlie Grant was another big win from that game. I think that was because it was the first time that we saw her play a full 90 minutes. Agree and, on both of those. Yeah. And, and for the vast majority of it, I thought she was very good. She was really solid considering who she was coming up against as well. You know, it was a really impressive thing. And so that gives me and presumably as well the coaching staff, more confidence that the absence of Ellie Carpenter is not going to be as massively felt as we perhaps feared. So that was another good thing. I think speaking to goalkeepers, the performance of Mackenzie Arnold, I think was quite 
um, it, it was it was quite disappointing, and I would have expected, I think, a little bit better from her, given her um, seniority, given her experience. But I think overall, this game showed us that Tegan Micah is probably our best and most informed goalkeeper at the moment. Thought she was very good in that first half against Spain. She made some some really important, um, very brave challenges. And also her positioning, her awareness, her strength, and also her distribution when she actually had the ball, all of those things I think were really impressive as well. So those three players were were really um, standouts for me. And, and Tony Gustafson said in the post-match press conference that Courtney Vine was actually another one he was impressed with, particularly when she was given an opportunity to bomb a little bit more forward and do what she's really good at. And we did see towards the back end of the game that, once she had the ball at her feet and she was in the final third, she took players on and she beat them. You know, she's got that speed, she's got that skill, and she's got that courage to do that against some of the best players on the planet. So that's another, I think, good um, lesson to have been learned from this. But overall, you know, yes, throwing Taylor Ray, or Taylor Ray on in the last sort of 15 minutes may not have been a particularly comprehensive education for her, but it was her first ever experience coming up against a team that plays at international speed and there is nothing like match minutes for learning lessons like speed, not just speed in terms of physicality, but speed in terms of how quick things happen around you, how quickly you need to respond, how quickly people make decisions. You can't replicate that in training environments. You can't replicate it at club level. You can only do it in circumstances like this. So I think for players like Ray, players like Jamila Rankin as well, who was thrown on quite late, players like Grant, all of these young players who we are expecting to be able to step up over the next year and beyond the Women's World Cup as well, this is their first taste of the international speed of football. And that I think is a really important lesson that's going to be learned from them regardless of the result. It is a real shame that um, we saw, obviously, Angie Beard pull out um, for personal reasons and Alex Chidiak forced out with that, I think, broken nose and concussion that she got over in the NWSL because I think both of those players would have added a lot a lot to that lineup just in terms of what they, you know, that Beard can play anywhere sort of in a, in a back five on that left side and um, we know what Chids provides in midfield and I think would have, I'm not saying she would have necessarily gone toe-to-toe with, with Spain's midfield, but I think... We saw against New Zealand, right, Sam, what she and Katrina Gorey can do when they when they play off each other. Um, yeah, it's it's. Uh, I guess it was just. I think it was just disappointing, and I think M- Mackenzie Arnold is the one of the big talking points, as you say, Sam, to come out of it. Um, it feels like she is so commanding at club level with West Ham, and she really, you know, controls her domain there, and one of the best keepers in in the FAWSL. Um, but when it comes to performing at international level, it just doesn't seem to happen for her. Um, I'm not sure if it's that she's bereft of confidence. Um, this this game was a bizarre situation, but um, to get, um, you know, you get thrown on at halftime. But if you're the second or third keeper, as Angela was saying to us pre-recording, you've got to be ready to be thrown into the action. And she just didn't, in comparison to Tegan Micah, who I think always looks so assured, so commanding, um, just seems to, patrol that that sort of 18 yard box and knows exactly where she wants everyone knows exactly what she's doing and you always feel very I think confident and safe with her there it just felt chaotic once Arnold was was in there and with a bar Claire Polkinghorn as you say very inexperienced backline you kind of need a a goalkeeper who's really commanding and owning their area and you know sort of making the game their own and we we didn't have that and you know, we're already obviously down a goal and I don't think there was much Mackenzie Arnold could do about the first one she shipped. Um, but from there, it, it just never really felt like there was that level of that level of control. The substitutions at and just after halftime, Sam, I thought you talked about this really well. Angela, we talked about Mackenzie Arnold. Angela hinted at it with Emily Van Egmont's departure. That felt to me like where it all went wrong and really chaotic. We were under siege in the first half, but, you know, they sort of held out despite Spain clearly still being dominant. Were those the wrong subs at the wrong time? Because I think that's been the general consensus. Yeah, look, um, there are a lot of things about this game and this squad that Tony Gustafson is not responsible for, Um, but he is responsible for substitutions and he is responsible for tactics. And I think in that second half, he is to blame for both of those things. And, 
the first thing that I noticed when those three substitutions were made at halftime, so Micah came off for Arnold, uh, Emily Gilnick came off for Jamila Rankin and uh, Emily Van Egmond came off for Princess Abini. Those were not like-for-like substitutions aside from the goalkeeper. That was a forward coming off for a winger and a midfielder coming off for a right back or a left back, sorry. uh, Strategically, tactically, that was not accounted for. And so you saw when we played with a basically a five at the back in that first half against Spain, a sort of a five, four, one for most of the, uh, most of the half, we then with those substitutions changed to something more looking like a four, three, three, something that we're more familiar with, with the Matildas, something that provides the Matildas with the um, structural ability to attack in the way that we know that they can to, to exhibit this sort of never say die energy, this dynamism, this transitional sort of football, all that sort of stuff. So he, he, he transitioned to this four, three, three, but the problem with that was that our lack of midfield was not accounted for properly. Van Egmond was not appropriately replaced. And then we copped three goals in the space of, I think it was 13 minutes. So as a result of that, and Gustafsson acknowledged this post-match as well, when we asked him about it, he moved back to a five-four-one because he wanted to stop the bleeding. He wanted to he wanted to give the the, the players a chance to play in the style that they have uh, are sort of known for that they've become accustomed to in that kind of structure. But when he saw that they didn't actually have the players who were capable of doing it in the structure that he was giving them, he wanted to basically try and prevent any future damage and that's I think why we saw after those first those early three goals in the second half you saw them transition back back to a back five and then that's why we sort of saw um the the half settle a little bit more but then Harrow as you mentioned it sort of all you know unraveled again towards the back end of the half as well which is perhaps due to fatigue perhaps due to other kinds of things so those are things that Gustafson is responsible for I think he would have learned a lot from making those errors and I you know I don't hesitate to say that they were errors because look how they ended up um and I think another thing that he would have learned from that is that even though we do have an abundance of midfielders and he acknowledged that as well there are certain kinds of midfielders that you need for certain kinds of games and this was a game where taking off someone as experienced and as physical as a Van Egmond and not having a suitable like-for-like replacement in that central like space was a, was a really, really big misstep from him because we saw exactly what Spain did. You know, Spain has maybe one of the best midfields in the world and they showed it. Um, so that, that was a, that was a fault. And I think the other issue that this game really raised was that we still don't really have a suitable replacement for Sam Kerr. We saw Emily Gilnick run around a bit. We saw Larissa Crummer run around a bit. We saw Remy Simpson come on towards the back end of the game, run around a bit. They didn't really offer anything in terms of the um, influence that Sam Kerr has on the field. And obviously they're not going to because Sam Kerr is Sam Kerr. But we still need to be able to have a a, a second string striker who can do a, a really good job in that role. And I don't think any of the options that we saw against Spain um, provided any kind of answer in that respect. I think we're still... Um, going to be struggling to find how to become less reliant on Sam Kerr, as is the sort of discourse. Um, But it's only by throwing these players into these moments and seeing how they go that you're actually going to figure out the answer. And then they're also not getting the delivery. Exactly, exactly. You know, having Ellie Carpenter and Steph Catley pinging crosses. I still think our best second number nine option is going to be Caitlin Ford, right? But Mm -hmm. And also she's absent. So there's so many players absent. And And Mary Fowler. And Mary Fowler, exactly. Exactly. I really hope these players are so well rested and, you know, ready to go for the next um, break because they've missed two international breaks in a row now because we obviously didn't send anyone to the Algarve, I think it's the Algarve Cup. So these players should be refreshed and ready to go. The concern, I guess, is how much is this a miss, you know, uh, you, you have to balance it. And we've talked about player welfare is um, how much do you lose by having a couple of windows where they're not together? I think they needed to get past the, the Asian Cup and that sort of thing. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how they go from here. And we'll talk about it in a moment. Um, Angela, I'm curious as to your thoughts. Where does this leave the Matildas right now? Because we, you know, we know that, 
bar those New Zealand wins, there has been pressure on the coach. The performances have been up and down. There's that recent losing record. We have seen some players come through, but where do we sit? Does this, does this, because I think there's been a lot of commentary. How much does this set us back? Albeit we didn't have a lot of our first choice players. We know that there's a lot of young players getting tested out. As Sam correctly pointed out, Spain is one of the best and most informed teams in the world. What does this result, a 7-0 thrashing to a very good Spain team of a very young Matilda Zaffi, what does this actually do in terms of the scheme of things heading towards the World Cup? That's a great question. I don't know if I have the answers or any answer really. I guess, um, like I said earlier, for me personally, what I would like to see is just consistency, not in terms of necessary well result consistent results would be nice like on a psychological level at some stage to understand where the Matildas are at because yeah, it's a bit up and down sometimes um but I think I, I I'm, I'm kind of feeling a little bit positive in the sense that I think we've consolidated that kind of we, people have been calling this the reserve side right and I think it's good to see that we've got names like Nevin and Grant and Vine and coming back and coming back into the squad. Um, and I think that's a positive thing. So I think the consistent, what I would like to see going forward is to see those names in and amongst the upcoming squad announcements for the friendlies like Canada and just to see some consistency and to have some kind of understanding as to what our strongest team is going to be looking like for the World Cup next year. Obviously, this conversation is so dominated and so framed around the World Cup and it's really hard to kind of separate the bigger project that Tony has obviously been tasked with here when he's bringing in debut players for games like this. Um, But I think that that it is also important to recognise that we, even though we are not going to win the World Cup, (laughs) we still want to do well and we still want to play good football and we still want to, I guess we've touched on it here, but we didn't see that never say die kind of attitude in this game. And um, to see that on display at a home world cup, I think that's going to be important. I don't know. So moving forward, I guess just consist a consistency of some kind would be good because I'm still, yeah, a little bit, confused and we obviously are not privy to all the the backroom decisions but there's obviously a lot of things that have to be balanced when they make choices around squads and player welfare I I will say that that's been an important thing that that has been prioritized and I don't think that Mm. I would want ever want us to see a step backwards and to see players being put into situations where they're putting their health at risk um whether that be their mental or their their physical health because they're overloading but um yeah, and I guess we, we do have the next friendly against Portugal. So that potentially might provide a more realistic um, idea of where we're at um, because, yeah, Spain are just incredible, full stop. So I don't know. That didn't answer the question, but too long didn't read consistency <laughs> of some kind would be nice. Um, and, yeah, I know, Sam, you have thoughts and feelings around expectation management at large as well and how fans can be approaching that over the next forever. (laughs) Sam, I just want to get your thoughts quickly. Um, If you're Spain and you reckon your big guns are going to go up against Australia's big guns, Sam Kerr, Caitlin Ford, Steph Catley, Alana Kennedy, Hayley Razzo, et cetera, et cetera, Mary Fowler, um, and it's your perfect tune-up for the Euros, and then you find out a couple of weeks before you're going to be playing the twos, let's be honest. It's like a reserve squad. Do you reckon Spain would have been pretty keen to not prove a point? But if I if I was them, I'd imagine I'd be like, well, we're not going to get the tune-up we wanted, so let's just go to town. That's, I mean, that's how I probably would have been feeling. Absolutely. They had no reason to basically play a pity game against us. They're 10 days got away from a women's Euros. Right. They're in absolutely ripping form. They need to use every possible game opportunity to, like, peak. They're, they're in peaking time at the moment, right? So it's no surprise to me that they have gone absolutely all out. And when you look back across, I guess, their last probably six months' worth of, get, worth of games, they beat Scotland 8-0. They beat the Faroe Islands 12-0, right? Like, they, they, they don't give a shit. 
They beat Hungary seven nil. Going further back, they beat Azerbaijan thirteen nil. Moldova ten nil. Like they're not. They don't care about the, whether we're a minnow or not. They're going to come out and they're going to do what they do because they have another plan that which is more than just let's be nice to the kids. And also, I don't want to speak for Spain, but you have to wonder: would they be feeling disrespected that this <laughs> this two's team came out and played them? I wouldn't be wrapped. Like, no, no, of course especially not. when you're yeah. trying to sell tickets and that, and we talk, exactly, you know, you, you know, we we have the friendlies against New Zealand at home, and you've got all the the big guns, and then you go to go there, and none of them are there. I, I imagine it would have been quite frustrating, and I, I can't, I obviously can't speak for them, but if you're going, if you're going into this game thinking we're going to play against Sam Kerr, and we're going to test ourselves against some really good players, and then there's a handful of the best eleven there, you go, well, we're not getting the test that we wanted, so fuck, let's just go for it. Like, I, I wonder if there's, and, you know, obviously we just talked about before, I'm not sure how much that actually benefits our young players to have Spain going, well, let's just put the foot down, even if they only really did it for 15 minutes and then another 15 minutes and then another 15 minutes. It was enough to, to thrash him. And, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I just, I just felt like it was all bad. But it could be like kind of like a, you know, Bon Marty punched me in the face. It was awesome kind of <laughs> experience as well, maybe. I don't know. Um, I was also, can we just touch on, we haven't talked about it, the anthem? What happened? Oh, my Sam? God. <laughs> You've got the goss on this. So when the anthem started playing, uh, maybe it's because it was so early in the morning I was still a bit delirious. I was like, gosh, our anthem is so like, it's so orchestral. It's so moving. And then I was like, hang on, why does this sound like a Disney song? Hang on. And then I tweeted and I, I was like, well, this sounds great. I don't know where they got this version, but I'm loving it. And then Spanish women's soccer Twitter found my tweet. And I realized that the organizers in Huelva, where the game was played, found a Christmas version of the Australian anthem and played that. I don't know if it was deliberate. I don't know if it was an accident, but there is a history, I believe, of Australia playing a different anthem for a Spain team at some point somewhere. Maybe it was revenge. I don't know. All I want to say is thank you, Welva, for finding this version of the anthem because I'm never going to go back to the boring old version. This one was sassy. It was so fierce. I loved it and I want it to be everywhere always. I was about to say the more perhaps the anthem that would have been more reflective of the, the final result would have been my high school band's um, rendition of the national anthem, which truly is haunting. It's <laughs> so it lives rent free. I just so much shame for me as a person comes from us playing that in assembly it was so bad Just, I played French horn guys if you can tell I, I definitely have French horn French horn energy about me but um I, w- I was not very good at it either so I, I take responsibility for my role in how bad it consistently was we never it's never good anyway Sam, are you okay? <laughs> it's not that funny. <laughs> just imagining you playing French horn and just like 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 terrible Titanic flute. That's what I'm imagining. But <laughs> yes, yes, it is that. This, play, this is getting out of control. I think it's fair, it's fair to say things just got worse from that anthem. Um, but I think we can wrap today by throwing forward. Um, I've two questions for each of you. Um, one. Uh, do these young players, I'll start with the first one. Do these young players who've just copped a 7-0 shellacking, have they got the confidence? Have they got the grit? Have they got whatever you need to get past this? Is is this something you can get past as a young player copying? Or even this this team, can you get past this sort of thing? Can you move on and uh, back up again in a couple of days? I think so. And I think the reason that they can do that is because they are in an environment with a head coach and staff members who are very, very clear that this is a friendly. You go into friendly games with very different priorities and principles than what you do a competitive match. They learned a lot from this, as we've sort of mentioned. Yeah, it was a crappy scoreline, but this is Spain taking everything into consideration, taking the context, taking the opposition, taking the squad wrapping all of those things into the one moment, I think these players will understand why this happened and they're going to be looking at the positives and moving into the Portugal game. 
I would expect that these players will be feeling good because Portugal are not a Spain. They are probably going to be a more realistic um, sort of benchmark for us to be able to measure ourselves against. And I would like to think that we'll see a little bit more of the Matildas that we know and love um, against Portugal with that confidence, with that never say die attitude um, that, than, than what we saw against Spain because Spain, it was, it was almost an exception to the rule. I weirdly have more confidence in the younger players and the ones who have less experience to bounce back from this than the fringe ones who potentially like went through this experience. Um, um, and like, yeah, we've talked about Mackenzie Arnold and that kind of, she's at a very different stage in her career. Mm. And I think brings, it's all kind of, you know, embedded by that point. Whereas like a Taylor, yeah, it's all fresh for a lot of these. So they've got, and I think, yeah, as you say, say Sam, they are in a really positive environment. So I do feel like I, I don't feel concerned about them coming off the field and, and not having the support that they need to kind of process this and to move forward. Um, and I also like Taylor Ray has done what her ACL in both legs or whatever. She'll be fine. She's like <laughs> so resilient. I, I, I think, yeah. Um, it's, I'll, I'll be interested to see if we do see, for example, like Winona Heatley or, or Jacinta mm. come in for the Portugal. The Hawk. Okay. <laughs> Mackenzie Hawksby. The Hawks. Yeah. Um, because I don't know, maybe like, do you give an opportunity for people to work on what they may have not had the opportunity to work on last? That's such a bad sentence. Do you give the opportunity to the players who just had some minutes in this game to try and sort of reset and build on what they may have wanted to have worked on or execute a sort of the game plan that's more suited for them playing at an appropriate level? Or do you give, yeah, more debuts, more minutes to more players? I would probably prefer the former, but at the same time, I'm greedy and I want to see more people play. Um, and I'd be really keen to see Mackenzie Hawksby um, make her debut. So that's not really an answer, but I think that they'll be fine. She'll be right. My my second question to this is, and what do we need to see against Portugal? I think it is important to note when we talk about them being close to our level, Portugal actually beat our close to full strength team um, a few years ago. I think it was the Algarve Cup. So they're not pushovers by any means. As we talk about, Europe is constantly advancing. And I think um, one thing we didn't really touch on, but this is sort of... Uh, uh, and you've talked about it before, Sam, really highlighted how quickly Europe is going up and <laughs> and improving and developing and how wary we have to be that we're not being being left left behind um, because, you know, sort of our next tier of players have been well and truly, unfortunately, shown up. But my question is, um, bar some little moments that we talked about, what do we need to see against Portugal? Because there's no doubt, like, the headline to come out of this is it's put, you know, rightly or wrongly, depending on what you say, it's put more pressure on the coach, it's put more player pressure on the team, regardless of a number of key names being there. Just come off a 7-0 spanking. There's a quick turnaround. You're both confident that there's the resilience in all of these players to turn it around. What What is a turnaround? What What do we need to see? Yeah, that's a good question. So I, I think the first thing that we would like to see is not this five at the back defending for your life, bunkering in, parking the bus for almost the whole game. I don't want to see that. I don't think fans want to see that. And I don't think the players want to play that. I know that it's a necessary um, tool on the kit of all teams that you need to be able to adjust and adapt to your position. But I think by virtue of that, Spain, we knew Spain were going to be like this before we started. I don't think Portugal posed the same kind of multifaceted attacking weapons that Spain does. And therefore, I don't think we need to be as defensively minded as what we were against Spain. I think that we also need to see um, some more convincing transitional play out of defense I think that was one of the things that we really struggled with against Spain and you know again caveat at Spain it was always going to be hard but against Portugal they don't have the same caliber of players and so I would think that there are going to be more opportunities for the Matildas to move forward to attack to transition to use the um the really exciting attacking players that we do have in a Courtney Vine 
in an Emily Gilnick, um, in I'd love to see a Mackenzie Hawksby as well. I think she offers something really important going forward. I'd like to see more of Katrina Gorry. The more minutes for Gorry, the better. I need her to cement her spot in that midfield. I would also like to see, I think, um, more, uh, I guess, probably more minutes for someone like Taylor Ray because Katrina Gorry, as fantastic as she is, I don't think she is the number six that we need. I think she's a better number eight. She's a better box-to-box midfielder. And when she's given the freedom to attack and to create, she's so much more dangerous. So if you were to partner her with someone who is a more classic number six like a Taylor Ray, or it would have been, you know, someone like a, an Elise Keller Knight or, um, you know, a, another, maybe, maybe probably not an Alex Chidiak, but, you know, so partnering her with someone that frees her up, but also cements the spot of another player who can sit a little bit deeper. I'd like to see something like that. And I would like to see goals. I think that's the thing that most people will probably want to see as well. I want to see us score a couple of goals. I think it's going to be important for the confidence of the team. I think it's going to show that we are able to create and to score goals without our main creators and goal scorers. Um, and I think it's going to help with, with, you know, how fans feel about this team because, you know, we need to, we're getting to the point now where we really need to temper our expectations. I think this is a conversation that has been happening quietly beneath the surface for a couple of months now after the Asian cup, but we need to actually start being quite blunt about it. The Matildas are not uh, going to win the world cup. They are not one of the best teams in the world. In fact, they are currently sitting outside the top 10. We, we think that they are capable of doing more than I think. And that I think most people in women's football think they are capable of achieving. And we need to start to realign our expectations with what we're actually seeing on the field And I know that there are all these different contextual reasons for why we're not seeing what we want to be seeing, but this is the reality now. This is where Australia is. We've seen that happen with the Socceroos already. This is where the Matildas are going. And that's okay. That's just where we are. That is the result of decades worth of investment, of a lack of player power, lack of investment, lack of player pathways, lack of international football at high levels. All these things are now accumulating into what we're seeing with the Matildas at the moment. And the more big games that we play against teams like Spain, teams like Portugal, teams like whatever, we are going to become, uh, it's going to become much clearer to us where we sit in the global pecking order. And you know what, we have to be okay with that because that's just where we are. And we are having to work with what we've got. And I think that's the big challenge for Gustafsson is how do you work with what you've got in this situation when the rest of the world is getting better faster than what we are? How do you still maintain the support of fans? How do you still maintain the support of media, of sponsors? How do you still make a team competitive? How do you still try to meet this larger sort of wider social expectation with a team that has largely the odds stacked against them in lots of different kinds of ways? So This game against Portugal, yes, it's going to be a better reflection of where we sit because Portugal are probably closer to where we are in terms of uh, their development, in terms of where they sit on the international ladder, in terms of the quality of their players. And that's okay. That's good. We need to know that because in order to know where to go, we need to know where we are. And so that's the the purpose, I think, of of friendly windows like this and of games like this against Spain um, and the one coming against Portugal as well. So the sooner we do that, the sooner we figure out where we sit, the sooner we can figure out where to go next. I think we do need to see what you said about we need to see goals, we need to see attacking intent, Sam. I don't think we can afford to see another, as you say, sort of backs to the wall, sitting back and then collapse. Like For me, I that's where you would, I think, very much be entitled to say what was the point of this friendly window if that happens. Um, because as you say, Portugal, they're a good team. They're not on the same level as Spain. If you're not going to back these players in to actually have a go at them, and try and showcase what they can do. I think that was, to me, one of the really disappointing things, and we touched on it, not so much with in terms of their debut, but it didn't give these players, obviously Spain are a quality opposition, we didn't have other quality players, but it didn't give this sort of second tier of players a chance to actually show what they can do um, because it was so backs to the wall, it was so low block, sit back, occasionally try and get them on on the counter, it was rare, bar a Katrina Gorey shot. You, you didn't really get, these players didn't get a chance to show what they could do or how they could actually contribute to the Matildas going forward, which is not really fair on them, whether or not they're resilient enough to to bounce back. That's 
probably going to be individual. There's different factors to that. But what I think we have to see in this Portugal game is players given the chance to actually show what they can do and given a chance to show, like Katrina Gori was already a top player. She was an AFC player of the year in 2014. Like we know, we know she can play. We haven't, you know, we know, we know that maybe we've learned that she has to be a really important part of this team, but I think we were starting to see that already. We knew that Charlie Grant was probably our best option. It was great to see her really perform and Tegan Micah as well, but we need to see more players given a chance to, to flourish. And I think, to be honest, they need to be pushing for a result. Like I'm not saying that I necessarily expect a team full of young players and fringe players to, to beat Portugal, but it has to be competitive because I don't think people will want to sit back and see another, you know, if it's three nil, four nil loss, I think that would be, that would be really flattening. Um, uh, yeah. I want to, I want to see more players. I'd, I'd like to see a Mackenzie Hawks be, get a run. Um, as I said earlier, I think a lot of these players would have benefited from being used in those in those New Zealand friendlies. Um, and I know that they have, were playing the big players and that sort of thing. It, yeah, I think, yeah, we need to see more. And I understand what you say about tempering expectations, Sam, but um, we, can, <laughs> we can talk about that. But uh, I think the momentum train is already rolling. There's a lot of people, rightly or wrongly, who think the Matildas can win the World Cup. And even if they don't think that, they expect us to at least be competitive or to be to feel like we're a chance in every game. I think that's something that has sort of underlined the Matildas' growth over the past few years. I realised that was not a straight angle. It's kind of on an angle there. Um, I think that's something that has underlined the, the growth of the Matildas in the public sphere over the past few years. Whatever happens, they all, people have always felt like we're a chance. Even if, you know, everything says things are going to be stacked against them, um, um, Spain, for example, are a much better team. I think that's what has made this, yeah, extra demoralising maybe because it is such a, a big reality check. It is such a, this is where our sort of next tier is. And that wasn't a full-strength Spain team either. Like they were missing some players through COVID. Um, Jenny Hermoso, I think, is both injured and out of favour at the moment with Spain. Um, so, you know, it could have been worse is the thing. It could have been much better, obviously, have we had our players but, yeah, I think what we need to see against Portugal is something that, as you sort of said, Sam, gives us a better indication of where things are actually at. And I think the only way that can be done is by giving the players that were effectively sent to the slaughter against Spain a chance to actually maybe make the first move this time around rather than be on the defensive, having to anticipate, having to be reactionary giving them a chance to actually show what they can do because they weren't given a chance against New Zealand when they probably should have been. So if we're going to get something out of this next game, and I'm not saying we should go all out attack and let Portugal just smash back against, against us, but I think these players actually have to be given a chance to show what they can do. Um, and that might not result in a win, but I think you come away with a lot more than what we saw in this last game because it, it, for me, it harks back a little bit to the Olympics. You know, when we had the draw against the US and it was like, yeah, we, we've sealed a spot, but we probably would have already sealed a spot. And the average punter was like, I would have just liked to see us go at them. Like, I think there is an element of that to it. And I think that is something that is still um, hanging around uh, uh, maybe Tony's approach as well as we did at the Olympics is people want to see our players flourish and, and shine. And they, they like to see we've, we saw it with the Socceroos, with Ange Postacoglu. People loved seeing an Australian team that backed themselves to go up against the best in the world and shine. And, yeah, you don't always get the results, but at least you, you see something. And I, I acknowledge that wasn't possible against Spain, given the personnel. And I talked about the, the scheduling and that before. But I think at the very least against Portugal, we need to see these players given an opportunity to, to actually, actually do that. Because if it's just more of the same that we saw against Spain, then... I think people will be well. Uh, I think they'll be well placed to to be pretty damning with their commentary again. And I think if we see a similar thing, I think it will be actually even more justified than copping seven nil against Spain. To be honest, I, I just want to see buying time. To be honest, I I agree. I want to see some goals. Um, don't mind. I, I guess and 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 in saying all of this about Portugal and um, the kind of level that we're at, let's not forget. Island game <laughs> you know what I mean like nothing's a given so yes big chihuahua energy let's take it to him and let's 
that's that's what I want to say. I, I want to like, say, go on. Like big Chihuahua energy, as in the energy is big, but it's that of a small Chihuahua. Just love, do you see what I'm saying? I think you know what I'm saying. I, yeah. I'd love to see, um, and you touched on them before, Sam. I'd love to see, say, a Winona Heatley or even a Matilda McNamara if, if they think she's ready. But Heatley, especially, I thought was a standout defender in the early women. Play her next to Polks and put Nevin at left back. She's been playing really well in Sweden there. Give her a chance to run. <laughs> Let Charlie Grant run. Play a, play a back four. Let those fullbacks who we need to see if they can fill an Ellie Carpenter in a Steph Catley role. Let them try and do that. That's what I would really love to see. Give those forwards a bit more of a chance. Let Mackenzie Hawksby get in there and get lippy. Like, <laughs> let her make those forward runs. Let, I just want to see these players given a chance to actually shine um, because they've copped all the, the scrutiny of being, you know, effectively the reserves who've um, had to cop the, the might of Spain. Let's let them give them a chance to show what they can do because we saw it every week, right, guys? Like we saw them do this in the A-League women. We saw Courtney Vine just shred people for fun. We we saw players like Heatley and McNamara hold their own against good strikers. We saw Hawksby bombing forward, Taylor Ray, Rachel Lowe. Um, I really liked the little glimpses we got of Amy Sayer at the end of that Spain game. She's a very tall midfielder. That surprised me. I forgot that. Like I want to see these players given a license to to do something, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I, I feel about the Matildas the same way that I think a lot of people feel about the Socceroos in the sense that if we play to our strengths and we give ourselves the best chance to play our way and we still lose, that's okay. If we lose to a better team, but we we lose to them playing the way that we like to play and really giving it a go, I think more people will be more forgiving of that than if they played very conservatively, very pragmatically, trying not to lose in the way that we sort of tried not to lose against Spain and then look how that sort of turned out. I think we're, we're wanting to see the Matildas be the Matildas. And if they, if it turns out that Portugal are better than them on the day, then that's just football and that's how it goes sometimes. And we can still learn lots of lessons from that. But in terms of our identity, in terms of really getting these newer fringe emerging players to understand what it feels like to play as the Matildas on that field, I think this game against Portugal is going to be the best opportunity to do that. Well, guys, I think that's enough out of us on Matildas v Spain and our bleary-eyed takes. Should we change tack for a moment? we got other things we got to talk about. Sam Kerr was not in Spain on the weekend. Guess where else Sam Kerr wasn't? You won't guess. She was not number one in the ESPN top 50 women's players in the world. And we're not happy about it, are we, gang? No. Yeah, not happy. <laughs> no, I'm sorry, I just can't bring the energy like you can, Harrow. You just have so much, so many reserves for protecting Sam Kerr from anything bad at all happening to her. Which in this case, it is bad that she's number two, I suppose. But Sam, our, our semi doesn't do it for the individual accolades, I know. But you got let's, you, like, let's she, talk about she this. She should right? be number one, right? Let's like, talk about this. Okay, okay, all right. So num- the number one spot, we'll say it up front, was taken out by Alexia Pateas, right? Barcelona captain, plays for Spain. Spain's currently, I think, 98 caps, almost the first player to reach 100. Like, she's obviously amazing. Ballon d'Or winner, great. But, and this is a big but, if there was any year in which Sam Kerr would be winning and topping various lists and awards, surely... Surely, Surely it's this one. one. She has had the best season in her entire career this year. It kind of baffles me. So, and and when I know it's it's hard to compare leagues and whatever, and is Spain better than England, whatever. But when you look at the trajectory of Sam Kerr, when you look at how many back-to-back golden boots, how many titles, how many records she's broken, how she plays how she plays with Chelsea, how she plays with every club that she's ever played for. The fact that she broke Australia's all-time leading goal scoring record this year, how she has done all of this at her age, having come where she's come from and, and, and still just can't crack that number one spot. It baffles me. I don't understand it. I mean, there's, there's a few we, we disagree with, I think in here, but Sammy's got to be the number one, right? Like, it shows how <laughs> I did find it funny. We were just talking about the Spain um, Matildas game, 
how many Spain fans were talking about Sam Kerr and like quoting the old um that old tweet from Sam about uh, competitiveness or whatever it was from a few years ago, mates. She's not even playing. <laughs> she, she's in your heads. Um, but it was yeah that that kind of fascinated me because yeah Sammy wasn't even playing but she seemed to be the number one player that a lot of Spanish football fans were were directing their comments towards um but yeah as you say Sam this is clearly her best year she just went from strength to strength she scored goals in big games she just scored lots of goals she assisted she was huge for club and country and I'm not saying Plateas wasn't like she's a phenomenal player but I think you'd be pretty justified to say last year was her year at the pinnacle and yeah it's it's very strange. Like, I don't know what more Sam can do. I guess she can win a Champions League. Um, can she win something with the Matildas? But, like, as far as, yeah, standout strikers in Europe went, there's no shame – or standout players in Europe went – there's no shame in saying she had a sensational season. Um, and I think last year we would have all agreed that she wasn't the number one player in the world. She still had more to do, but was exceptional Jenny Hermoso was arguably and I think when you look at the Ballon d'Or voting and those sorts of things that's reflected too there was so many sensational players but if this wasn't the year for her to get it geez I'd hate to see what she has to do this year like has she got to jump in goals for a bit has she got to add some assists to her game we saw Miedema do that um she's already a very involved in the build-up sort of player she can yeah she does a bit of everything but yeah it's uh yeah we're hurt here at the far post pod but maybe that's the secret. Like you put her in number two, so she's got to keep pushing to get number one. I, I actually don't think, sorry, ESPN for what I'm about to say. I don't think she cares. This is kind of like when Kendrick Lamar came second in the hottest one. No, he came number one. No, he can't. Sorry, guys. I'm thinking about it in terms of the Triple J Hottest 100. Kendrick Lamar came number two one year and everyone was like, this is outrageous. Why did the Rubens beat Kendrick Lamar? And it was like, besties, I don't think Kendrick Lamar cares. Like he's just having, living his best life and he released an incredible album and is at the top of his game. Doesn't really mind what's happening in this little music vote. But in saying that, maybe, maybe it is important for there to be haters for Sam Kerr for her to continue to thrive. So maybe, you know, there's a rhyme and a reason to it. Um, I definitely don't think that, you know, ESP, well, I, I do find it more likely that they potentially put Sam Kerr at number two just to see Harrow pipe up about it. That's entirely within the realm of reason, to be honest, um, and that could be what's happening here. But, um, yes, I do think, potent, you know, she could, she could be better. Like the sky is the limit with Sam Kerr. I really think that she could outshine herself next year as well because we've just seen her improve so much over these past couple of seasons and she's definitely also one of those ones if we were doing comparable again to the triple j hottest 100 triple j hottest 100 of all time if we had like a women's footballers best women's footballers of all times the stuff that she's already achieved in her career at her age is just like blows my tiny tiny brain so sam kerr she'll just she'll keep she'll keep smashing it i'm sure so um Fingers crossed next year, though. I do agree. At some point, it's got to happen, right? It's got to happen. Like, just in terms of the law of large numbers, right? Like, she has been nominated and in the top three of so many awards so many times. And, in fact, I think it's Marissa who told me this stat. Of the past, I think, five years worth of FIFA best shortlists, Sam Kerr is the only player to have been on all of them right? She's the golden boot winner on three continents. She has cracked the, again, she's cracked Australia's all-time leading goal scoring record. And she probably has a couple of good years left in her to take that record even further. She has back-to-back golden boots. She's won back-to-back titles with Chelsea. She, like, she just keeps getting, like, I think when we had this conversation last year, it was like, well, what more can she do? You know, like, but it just feels like she, imagines a a different version of herself that we mere mortals cannot and she goes and achieves that thing which is further beyond the horizons that we ever pictured for her and somehow still imagines that she has further to go like she is just like a force of nature to me I I am so astonished at how she has progressed over the last, particularly over the last three years it has been unprecedented and the, the fact that she like if she doesn't win at least a FIFA best or the next Ballon d'Or, 
that I think is going to be the moment where not just us on our little pod, but the rest of the world is also going to be like, hang on, what are you talking about? Because it's really been the rest of the world that we've had to convince that this player is worth something. And now she has shown that she can do it everywhere. And if she doesn't get acknowledged for it, then we burn it all to the ground and we start again. I will say Alexia Pateas does not have her, their lesbian Stacey moment, the cultural impact of that. That's also important, even though. Suck on that one. You know, she's, she's a, she's (laughs) an internet phenomenon as well as a footballing phenomenon. What more does she need to do? It's not the only controversial one, right? Like I thought Christiana Endler at 12, very low. You'd be flat as a goal. If you're a goalkeeper anywhere in the world, you'd be like, Oh, come on, man. The best goalkeeper in the world can't crack the top 10. Like, I know I, I was involved in the voting for this and I definitely had her her very high. I think Wendy Renard was quite low as well compared to what I was expecting. Um, there's a bit of controversy there, which I think is a good thing. There's clearly been voting happening from all over the world. So you're going to get skewed different ways depending on um, on who people vote for. Ellie Carpenter in there at, at number 27. Um I think Caitlin Ford might have made the the list as well off the top of my head. So three Aussies there. Um, yeah. But- In the top 10, I mean, I've got a couple of issues with the top 10 as well outside of the Sam Kerr question. The first is the position of Peniel Harder. I don't think Peniel Harder had a necessarily great season with Chelsea. Yeah, she was good, but she wasn't great, you know. We haven't really watched enough of Denmark to know whether she has been absolutely phenomenal for them either. So it sort of feels like her being at number five is a little bit generous. And Macario is a bit high too, I think. I, I thought think Macario was another Macario one as well. is very much up there on, like Ellie Carpenter has done more than Katarina Macario in her career. Yeah. And this is not a slight on Macario. She's clearly sky high as far as potential goes, but so is Mary Fowler, right? Like yeah. as far as um as far as potential versus the output. And I guess that's the difficult thing for everyone to to ascertain with with these sorts of with these sorts of lists. It's uh yeah, it's very difficult. And then you always have the question around when you have multiple players say so like we've just got to see what Spain can do. So, you know, firsthand. Um, when you've got quality around you as well, that that helps too. Um, which is where I think some, someone like an Endler is a great example of. She is clearly Chile's like only top tier yep. talent and has to do a lot. And she's also the best goalkeeper in the world. Um, yeah, I think there's a few maybe that, as always happens, I think these Spain players all deserve to be quite high, but there is always naturally going to be a, a swing towards maybe some of the English players, some of the US players. Like Sam Mewis has been injured for most of this year. So I think has maybe reputation has got her a bit higher um yeah so it's who i am actually very very pleased to see in the top 10 the first is marie antoinette katoto absolutely france and psg she is an absolute phenomenon she is 23 years old she's a complete gun she is the future of the french national team and like despite the absolute just messy drama that is the french national team she needs to be their starting setter forward for the next probably two world cup cycles she is extraordinary and the other player who I'm really glad to see, a player who I continue to think is massively underrated, is Caroline Graham Hansen. Oh, she's awesome. And Barcelona. She is she's so good. So good. We saw her tear us apart at the at the Women's World Cup, right? We know what she is capable of doing. She has been one of the most consistent performers of this Barcelona side as well. She's in probably the best form of her career, 27 years old. This Norway side is something that we should probably be looking out for as well come Euros and come Women's World Cup with Hegeberg back as well. Hegeberg cracking in the top 10 too. Well, the thing with Caroline Graham Hansen as well, and I remember reporting at at the World Cup and we went to Norway's training. They were lovely. Let us watch despite Graham Hansen being under a little bit of an injury cloud. I'm not sure how serious that was given she then went and tore us up. But I feel like she's almost flown under the radar in the international sense because so much of the talk around Norway in particular has been, well, is Hegeberg going to come back? Will she ever come back? Can this Norway team ever fulfil its potential without it? And Graham Hansen has led the charge for them for several years. She's like, hi, hi, I'm here too. Yeah, I'm quite good. Um, She's obviously killed it, as you say, Sam for Barcelona and kept doing the same thing for Norway and should only get better for having a Hegerberg back in the team. We've seen, seen them combine. We've seen Hegerberg scoring, scored against New Zealand. Um, Yeah. And yeah, it's, she's only surely going to get better by having more quality around her. So we, we do have some bones to pick with this top 50, Sam. Um, Number one being that our, our Sammy is not number one, but we're happy to see some others in there 
and I'm very excited to see the the conversations this will generate because I think um, in the world of women's football, everyone's getting more and more educated about the leagues outside of their immediate domain. They're more educated about European leagues and um, going the other way, the value of the NWSL. You see some players, I think you see it happen both ways. You see players who dominate the NWSL struggle to translate it over to a European league and vice versa. Not every player from Europe that goes over to, I think I think of like Marajan, for example, didn't set the world on fire at the rain, for example, but is such a quality player. They're different tempos, they're different styles of leagues. So I think, and c- combining that with international football, a year out from the World Cup, I think people are getting more and more um, educated on players outside their domain. And I think, yeah, that can only be a good thing the more conversation we have. But I reckon that's just about enough from us. Wouldn't you say, guys? We should have Marissa back soon. Yep. I know I know the people have missed her. Um, but, yeah, we, we'll be back to review the, the Portugal friendly. Um, so keep your, keep your eyes and ears out for that one. But otherwise, get some sleep, everyone. Catch up. You're going to be up 6 a.m. Um, Australian Eastern Standard Time to watch that one. Until then, see us.